Welcome to episode two of The Artful Manager. In episode one, I asked you three of the most basic, the most fundamental questions that any manager can ask of themselves. Now, I ask you to focus on your individual team members. And it is only natural that you will compare them against the best version of you. That's a tendency we all have. We like people who are like us. But I hope it won't come as too much of a revelation to you that no one else in the world thinks like you do. No one else acts like you do or reacts the same way as you do to, to any stimulus, whether positive or negative. So please be tolerant of differences, as my colleagues and I believe they are hugely beneficial. However, your success depends on your people being successful, both as individuals and as a collective. Inevitably, you will make comparisons between your people and those in other teams. But the crucial question you must be asking yourself continually is, is this the team that will enable me to make myself redundant? Remembering question one from the previous episode. If you think they have promise and you want to persevere with them, yes, more training, more coaching. If not, then changes will be required and we'll take you through our recommendations in episode 3. But for now, we have questions 4, 5 and 6 for you to ask yourself. Question 4. Am I making progress in getting to know and really understand all of my team members? My wife and I entered a KFC franchise on England's M3 service station last summer uh, to grab a bite to eat. We pressed the buttons to order our food and were given a number. It was, I guess, about eight o'clock in the evening, and we were almost alone at the counter waiting for our order. The bored white teenager stood behind the counter idly waiting for our food to be handed over to him from the, from the preparation area. I shall call him Ryan. Like most people, I enjoy people watching, and as I looked at him, I reckoned, hmm, he was a school dropout, earning minimum wage and desperate for the shift to finish so that he could return to his parents' house and play, well, video games all night. To confirm my instant off-the-cuff assessment, I nonchalantly asked if he was living the dream. Yes, he said lazily. Can't wait till I knock off. Oh, been working here long, I asked. No, only a couple of months after my exams finished. Oh, I said, going on to college? No, he said, talking more positively, I'm going to start an apprenticeship in carpentry in the autumn. Oh, that's great, I said, as he handed over our food. Good luck. And I meant it. He'd spoken well, he's earning money in the summer holidays, and can't wait to start learning his new trade as an in-demand craftsman. I couldn't have been more wrong about him. Good on him. A few years ago, I watched a television series in the UK called Hidden Talent. It was designed and run by scientists and academics, and I think they tested hundreds of people from all around the UK. Nine were found to have quite extraordinarily special talents, physical, mental, sensory, creative, of which they were totally unaware. The hidden talent experts then trained and developed them to face the most amazing challenges and push their, their newly discovered talents to the limits. Could these nine go from being total novices to top-class performers in record time? The answer was yes. 
These talents range from latent linguistic skills that allowed an individual to become fluent in a foreign language in just a few months, to the diving reflex which enabled one person to free dive to a depth of 60 meters, or even an extraordinary sense of direction that made someone a kind of a kind of human sat-nav, if you like, capable of finding their way through uncharted wilderness. It was amazing. I wonder if any of your team members have any talents that you are yet to discover. What do you really know about your work colleagues? Have you made assumptions like I did with Ryan at KFC? I guess, first of all, what do you really know about their life outside of work? What are they like as people? What are their favourite pastimes, hobbies, interests? Are they married, have children? Do they have elderly parents who depend on them? If single, do they have a group of friends to support them? Where do they live? What's their commuting time? What are the pressures and challenges they're facing at home? Are they going through a really rough time? Now, some will want to keep their private lives private, but in my experience, the majority like to talk about themselves and their lives. My colleagues and I suggest that taking a genuine interest and then understanding the lives of your individual team members away from work will prove a very worthwhile investment, as you may be able to make adjustments at work to make their lives easier at home. For example, changing start or finish times or getting them to work from home on a specific day of the week to suit their particular domestic circumstances, and they will appreciate that. Perhaps you're able to make similar adjustments at work. Would a standing desk or a, a different design of seat ease a little of someone's back pain? If rushing around a warehouse on foot, age permitting, would a, would a scooter or hoverboard give them a lift? I said in episode one that happy people make happy teams, which in turn makes for better performance and higher quality deliverables. I know of one very successful manager who asks each team member to rate their happiness on a scale of 1 to 10 every week so that she is alerted to a potential issue or problem that she may be able to help with, even if it's just a little bit of sympathy. Trust has been built up over time and she doesn't blame anyone for a low score and demonstrating a genuine interest in the welfare of individuals has overcome the natural resistance of the cynics in her team. But asking, how are you today, won't get you there, as the majority of people will try and work things through for themselves and not to seek help. So, no, really, how are you? If you wait until someone knocks on your door and asks for your help, I'm sorry, but you're too late. Your emotional radar should have picked up the signals that something is wrong and dealt with it earlier. And don't walk away when you hear, I'm good, thank you. Instead ask, what could I do to make things even better for you, John? If generally the mood in the team is upbeat, but you detect that one person in particular is maybe a, maybe a bit down, you can always ask one of their colleagues for help. John seems very withdrawn this morning, doesn't he? Would you have a, would you have a quiet word as if there's anything bothering him? Delegating the question has a double benefit as your mouthpiece is then more aware of your genuine caring attitude. Well, all this sounds great, doesn't it? Happy people, fantastic work environment. But as you can imagine, I get pushback regularly from many managers. John, we don't necessarily need happy people. We need productive people. Actually, I don't care if they're miserable. 
I just need the work completed. I have to admit, it is a fair point. You can hold a proverbial stick over people and beat them with it so that you get what you want in the short term. Until, at some point, they quit, seek a transfer, or more usually, withdraw their commitment silently and undetected. But we suggest that happier people may help you to get that extra 1% in team performance. Unhappy people tend to do the minimum required. When you are totally satisfied that you really understand the circumstances and motivations of each individual on your team, it's then time to look at how they perform as a collective, as a team. Question 5. Am I purposefully encouraging differences in my team? Now we've heard it said that men are told to think like a woman and women are told to act like a man. We disagree. People should be encouraged to be more of themselves at work. But inequality between the sexes is certainly present in most organisations, although we recognise there's been a significant improvement in recent years. The average gender pay gap in the UK is now about 8 or 9% for full-time employees, significantly lower in those under 40 and a bit higher for those over 40. For every dollar men earn on average in the United States, women earn 82 cents. But having asked you to carefully study each of your individual team members, it's now time to look at how well they perform when they work together. How would you describe the team dynamic? Is it what you need to be to make yourself redundant? If you have a mix of ages in your team, you'll already know that in some circumstances the attitudes and behaviours will vary between them. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to briefly recap what the academic community regard as the typical differences between the generations, although obviously individual variations can be muted or enhanced, of course. Baby boomers, very committed to civil rights. They protested for feminist causes, gay rights, against war. They love their rock and roll, display a strong work ethic and a sense of duty. They are very loyal. Importantly, they could help you to mentor the millennials on your team. Generation Xers are regarded as tech-savvy. Google, Yahoo, Dell, YouTube, Apple and many other billion-dollar tech companies were founded by Gen Xers. Although seen by some as less loyal and sometimes cynical, they are certainly resourceful problem-solvers. Generation Y, often called the Millennials, are sometimes portrayed as demanding butterflies who change employer at the drop of a hat. They like to challenge what is done and how it's done. They're curious, they often question authority, and they're certainly more aware of the state of the planet. Generation Z are generally considered to be confident and ambitious. They reject standardization, spend a lot of time on electronic devices. They may seem a little withdrawn, reticent even, as they may have spent less time on face-to-face -face social interactions. But we hope your team has a good mix of men and women with a wide range of ages. You may find it useful to invite your colleagues in a team meeting to discuss the differences in attitudes and behaviours that they observe in their colleagues. John's always last to speak. Uh, Siobhan looks after us all. She's a bit like our mum, even though she's the youngest. And Seema hates distractions and likes nothing better than to get her head down and concentrate on her work. 
and it's usually a good sign when your team members are comfortable enough to ask each other for help. If you don't have a good variation in ages and gender, then we ask you to consider it when you next need to recruit a new team member. I mentioned earlier that baby boomers can be good at mentoring your millennials, but the reverse is also true. Millennials can really help your boomers to better understand the digital age and its implications. Embrace and celebrate difference. And I wonder if you remember the 2015 film, The Intern. It starred Robert De Niro. And the publicity blurb said, Experience never gets old. If I'm talking today to a senior manager, let me ask you, who will you invite to mentor you? Many senior executives have recruited new graduates as direct reports so that they can learn how the next generation thinks, how they behave at work and play, and most importantly, how the boss may need to change their team, their organization, to meet the needs of these new customers. And before I move on, we would like to ask each of you to seriously think about engaging your own mentor, someone more senior who you admire, that could help you on your development journey, a journey which never really ends, even in later life. So we've talked about gender and age, so what about variations of colour, of nationality, of culture? Do people treat the Ryans at KFC differently if they're black or Asian? Some do, some don't. But we ask you to consider recruiting for difference. Try to make your team as inclusive as possible. And we believe you will learn as much from those with difference as they learn from you. We believe it will pay huge dividends. Not forgetting, of course, that to some, you are the one with difference. If you already have a multicultural team, we recommend that you and your team, together, take a look at the work of a variety of academics who research the differences on specific cultural norms. For example, you may already know that Dutch people are taller and speak more directly and to the point than the Brits. The daddy of all the research is generally acknowledged to be the late Professor Geert Hofstede, who conducted one of the most comprehensive studies of how values in the workplace are influenced by culture. Hofstede is spelled H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E. -E. Now in every team, there's always someone who needs a little more careful handling than the others. You may even classify one or two individuals as a bit difficult. Although other people may not share your opinion, it's time to look in the mirror again to examine your own emotions and feelings before doing anything. Why have you considered and classified them as difficult? Do they have more knowledge, qualifications, social power than you, status, physical attractiveness, admirers? Or perhaps their frustrations with work or home life means they take it out a bit on you. If you're confident that others have similar feelings about this person, then perhaps it's time to call it. In private, of course, and picking your moment carefully. Um, John, I wanted to have a, a private word. And to be honest, I've been thinking about this for a little while, as I feel that our working relationship would benefit from, well, from a bit of a boost. Explain why you wanted to speak to them, quoting specific examples of words, attitudes, behaviours or situations that could have been better between you both, and ask for their feelings in response.
Let them talk freely, but steer the conversation so that you're able to pick one area on which you could both make trial adjustments to see what effect they have. I use the phrase, I feel that, deliberately. It's an important phrase for you and your colleagues. Let me compare the following two statements. If you said, you don't trust me, it allows the other party, the other person, to come back with, don't be silly, of course I do, or it's not a matter of trust. And then the exchanges, the argument even, continues often with little resolution. But if you said, I feel that you don't trust me, contradiction is difficult, if, if really not impossible, because you're stating your true feelings. They can't say, no, you don't. Instead, the other party is more likely to come back with, well, why did you say that? This technique often leads to proper conversations and better outcomes. And you can use this prefix, if you like, to discuss your deepest concerns with your boss, your, your peer group, your staff. You can even use it at work and play. For instance, I feel a bit disappointed, I feel sad, I feel concerned, threatened, overworked, under pressure. But don't forget to counterbalance the negative with the I feel great today, on top of the world, I feel we're getting somewhere. And don't forget others, so instead of how are you today, mentioned earlier, what about how are you feeling today? And finally, we ask you to consider making every team member more aware of how they contribute most effectively to the team effort via a very simple survey called the Belbin Team Role Survey. Professor Meredith Belbin devised this very respected survey so that every team member better understands their natural behaviour within the team. He has defined nine typical strengths and also very importantly what he calls allowable weaknesses. Let me give you an example. One of the nine, Belbin calls a completer finisher, who he defines as someone who is painstaking, conscientious, delivers on time. But their allowable weaknesses are that they are reluctant to delegate, inclined to worry unduly. Now, we're sure that you will have a completer finisher on your team, but what other Belbin team roles do your people naturally fill? If all of your team are completer finishers, of course they will compensate for the missing strengths and allowable weaknesses by filling the other roles, but not as well or as quickly as those who are natural in that role. Which of the different team role types do I need now in order to complement the skills of my existing team? is a good question to ask when you next need to recruit. Visit belbin.com to find out more. Question 6. Am I spending enough time in my helicopter? Whether you are a pilot or not, as a manager you have to take off every day. In episode 1 I said that once airborne you would you would fly over the forest and inspect the area that your team of lumberjacks had cleared. Figuratively speaking, we would like you to imagine that you are, that you're hovering above your own team, silently watching the individual efforts and performances. Do you notice if the work of one team member is holding up the work of another? Is, is one person completing his tasks or her task quickly 
and then marking time, is your game plan working as you had intended it to? Can you see or feel that they are working towards the extra 1%? If yes, great. Tell them how pleased you are. But if not, is encouragement or adjustment needed? Perhaps you need to swap roles between two individuals or double the number of people working on a specific task or perhaps ask if one or two people would be willing to work extra hours. Separately, you may start to think about how you will adjust the team roles when, when one person goes on vacation at the end of the month. Mentally, you are always in your helicopter, comparing the now to the future, comparing performance of the moment to that which you are aiming for. You would have an unusual team if everyone performed at 100% consistently. For some, extra training or coaching may be required. For others, maybe their attitude is temporarily a little off-key. But I have to ask you this. Over time, you must decide who is your weakest link or links. What to do about it, we will cover in episode 3. But you are constantly asking yourself questions. Contrast the following two utterances of someone who knows he's well-regarded and is itching to get on with his career. He thinks he should be promoted and get more money. Sorry, John, look, I need to be given higher-level work soon, or reluctantly I'll have to look around for other opportunities. Alternatively, sorry, John, look, a bit of advice, please. If you were in my shoes, how long would you wait before seeking new horizons? I, I, I just feel I'm ready for more. Asking the questions, what would you do in my position, is a very useful way of trying to bridge gaps in attitudes or understanding. Now, interestingly, the Times has published an article by Decker Aikenhead entitled, The Real Problem with Men? They're rubbish at asking questions, and if you will allow me, I'd like to quote from it briefly. It may resonate with both sexes. She wrote, I met a really interesting man many years ago who suggested we meet for dinner a couple of weeks later. In the interim, he messaged me regularly, but by the eve of the dinner itself, I was on the verge of cancelling. He hasn't asked me a single question, I said in despair to an older, wiser friend. Ah, she said. I'm very familiar with this problem. Here's what to do. If he still hadn't asked a question by the time the main course came, she advised, sit back, study the salt cellar and go quiet. He will panic, thinking, oh, the conversation has been going along so nicely, uh, what's gone wrong? And then, my friend promised, he'll think, I know, I'll ask her a question. She was right. As the waitress walked away, he leant in and said, uh, uh, Sorry, what was it you were asking me again? Decker continued, Thirty years ago, a university friend seduced almost every straight woman I knew in college, plus several lesbians and a handful of men. He was not especially blessed in the looks department, so I asked him how he did it. Oh, it's so unbelievably easy. I don't get why every bloke doesn't do it. Was his secret? I just do two things. I ask them questions and I listen to the answers. 
As a Harvard study in 2017 confirmed, people who ask more questions, particularly follow-up questions, are better liked. The researchers concluded the tendency to focus on the self when trying to impress others is misguided. Now, I confess I've been guilty as charged more often than I care to remember, but I've told you about this article as a way of reinforcing the ask, don't tell, and listen more than you talk advice that we offer for you to really think about. If you suddenly find yourself talking a lot, it may be time to change the speaker. One more item about listening. Take time to listen to yourself, your self-talk. Plug the helicopter's headset into your own mind and listen to what you say to yourself. Now, we all talk to ourselves in our, our reflective moments, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. But it's not at all uncommon for newly appointed managers and those moving up the seniority ladder to feel a little lost or a little unworthy. Some people might worry they won't measure up to expectations or believe their abilities won't match those of their peer group but worrying won't get anyone anywhere. When I get frustrated about things not going the way I'd hoped, I often remember what, what Niall Quinn told me, and I'd like to pass it on to you. Now, Niall is an ex-Arsenal and Ireland soccer player, and I was interviewing him when he was the chairman of Sunderland Football Club to collect material for the book. When things were going from bad to worse for him, for example, when relegation was becoming more of a possibility, he said this to himself, I am the one who can do this. In fact, I was born to do this. I will stand tall, accept the knockbacks, but kick on and do what is necessary to achieve the goals I have set. Positive self-talk. So, You've now flown the helicopter over your team, tuned the radio into your mind to listen to yourself, and now I'm going to ask you to mentally fly over the teams of your peer group, to carefully and critically observe how the manager acts and how the team performs. You could, you could act as your own consultant, spot the mistakes you think the manager is making, but more importantly, pick up some tips, ideas, techniques, that you could test with or on your own team. And like it or not, you are in competition with others in your peer group, so it may help to keep them under observation at times. Mentally, being in a helicopter creates detachment, observing moods and behaviours from a distance. And we would ask you to consider keeping a little distance emotionally from your team members as well. And that may seem, at first, at odds with what we've been saying before, but it's not. You don't need to be friends with your colleagues. You don't even need to be liked. You need to be effective, always striving for that extra 1%. I'm told famous soccer managers like Sir Alex Ferguson deliberately created space between themselves and their staff, keeping everyone on their toes. I understand Pep Guardiola does the same. And to reinforce the point about not needing to be liked, may I tell you a true story which illustrates the emphasis my colleagues and I made in episode one about managers needing to be a bit of a chameleon, willing to make personal adjustments, even major ones, on their management style to get the results they need. This particular manager inherited a severely dysfunctional team whose people found it difficult to work together. Insults and arguments were common and work was sometimes deliberately mismanaged or ignored to get others blamed. 
Previous short-lived managers had tried all styles of command and control from the hands-off to the micromanager and coupled that with regular team togetherness workshops, but all to no effect. All had failed. The newly appointed woman tried exactly the same alternatives with exactly the same results. She spent a lot of time thinking about this. How could she get this team to unite? What was it about them that she could put the focus on? And she decided to use herself as the focus. She deliberately set out to get each and every individual on the team to dislike her, to hate her even. And for the first time in a couple of years, the team gradually became united, came together in their hatred of her. And guess what? Output increased measurably. Now that's management. So to summarise the questions that we've asked you to ask yourself so far in this series. Question one. Am I constantly reminding myself of the three elements of my real job? Two. Am I setting the right example with my body language and face? Three, am I spending my time intelligently? Four, am I making progress in getting to know and understand all of my team members? Five, am I purposefully encouraging differences in my team? And finally, am I spending enough time in my helicopter? Well, that's it for episode two. My name is John Cross, and together with Kevin Money at Henley and Rafael Gomez at the University of Toronto, we wrote the Little Black Book for Managers, upon which this series is based. Please email me with your feedback and any questions that you have at johncross at isolon.com. Thank you for listening. We wish you well on your development journey.